Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Ben Josephson fills in for Cosmo Macero on 321Go. Then, Suzanne Morse interviews Eugene Volokh, a UCLA law professor who has a new web series about free speech rules. And in Two Minutes with Tom, Tom and I talk higher ed in Massachusetts. First up, 321Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321GO on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. Filling in for Cosmo Macero, I am your host this week, Ben Josephson. In this installment of 321GO, the Brookings Institution released a report this week highlighting the growing gap between superstar metropolitan areas and the rest of the country. And we'll sit down with Dave Wedge, co-author of a book on Pete Frades, the former Boston College baseball player who inspired worldwide awareness of ALS, and we lost this week at age 34. And finally, Megan Rapinoe is your 2019 Sports Illustrated Sportsperson of the Year. Joining us here, as always, on 321GO is Kyanne Isaacson. Hello, Ben. The official voice of OA On Air. How was my Cosmo impression? I thought I, I, I liked your I liked your angle. Thank well you. done. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So, what caught my eye earlier this morning was a report that was just put out by the Brookings Institution, and I should say that I saw the stories about the report, not not immediately the report itself. I do not troll the Brookings Institute website very regularly, but it talks about. I'd uh, say I w- wouldn't have judged you, but I would have a little bit. So, <laughs> it's a good disclaimer. <laughs> So the, the big conclusion that they came, uh, or the several conclusions, but, but starting off is the fact that there's a huge disparity between the growth in the innovation economy in certain parts of the country um, and others. And this jumped out to me, which I thought was amazing. Five metropolitan areas, Boston, San Francisco, San Jose, Seattle, and San Diego, accounted for more than 90% of the nation's innovation sector growth from 2005 to 2017. Five cities, and you could even look at San Francisco and San Jose as kind of one big megaopolis. Area, yeah. Um, 90% of the growth. That's not New York. That's not Chicago, let alone places throughout the, the Midwest and Great Plains and, and Southwest. Um, what, what, do we think this, uh, what do we think this means for the rest of the country, Cayenne? First of all, kudos to Boston for being the lone East Coast city. Um, you know, I think when generally you think of innovation and tech, we do tend to think West Coast, Silicon Valley, and uh, Boston has really made a name for itself. So kudos there. Um, I think that we have felt it. I'm not shocked to see that we are an area that is booming. Um, you can look at our roads and we have more people and more traffic. And um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's good and bad all wrapped into one. Yeah, you're leading right into, uh, <laughs> right into conclusion number two that they have here is that high levels of territorial polarization are now a grave national problem in part uh, because of spiraling home prices and traffic gridlock in the superstar hubs. But, but they say I that also because, because it really means that the rest of the country, big parts of the rest of the country are being left behind. Um, some of the conclusions at the end of this is that the federal government should be putting more investment um, in growth in, throughout the Midwestern United States. But I think we definitely see that there is a, a upside and downside to, to this type, of, uh, this type of, of growth in the economy, if not managed properly from an infrastructure, home price, quality of life. 
standpoint. Uh, We have certainly seen that here in Boston. Yes, congestion on the roadways, but uh, home prices are, you know, getting increasingly astronomical. Uh, A lot of people can't afford to live in Boston anymore. Uh, We used to do some work with the city of Framingham, and they were really positioning themselves as a, you know, not so much tech, but a life science hub as an alternative uh, to Boston and Cambridge um, because their prices were lower for office space, but also for people living there, uh, for people working there so that they could live nearby and it'd be more affordable. So I think there is a play for other cities. Um, you know, five cities taking up 90%, that's a big chunk. Yeah. Um, other cities should be figuring out how they position themselves to kind of take some of this because there's only so much you know, in, in these five specific locations specifically, I mean, obviously we can talk about Boston more than any others, but um, there's there's more growth to be had. The innovation sector isn't going anywhere, so. And, and we see this, we, I in particular, and some others do a fair amount of work down in Connecticut, and, you know, we know that New Haven, Hartford uh, are, are understand that this is part of the problem and have put a lot of solutions in place, um, recognizing that their proximity to Boston and New York um, and a lot of world-class educational institutions gives them an advantage mm-hmm. even over some other cities that are less well-positioned, yeah. um, let alone Boston. So uh, interesting report, nothing that we didn't sort of already internalize to some degree, but to see it that stark, yeah. that stark in black and white um, was, was fairly shocking. Thanks, Ben. We're honored to be joined here today uh, by Dave Wedge, who's a journalist, uh, who's also authored uh, several books on a number of topics, including the Boston Marathon bombing and Tom Brady. Um, And along with his writing partner, uh, Casey Sherman, Dave also wrote the amazing story of Pete Frates, who five years ago initiated the Ice Bucket Challenge, which became a viral sensation, kicked off an awareness and fundraising campaign that went on to raise over $200 million for ALS research. Um, as, as many of us now know, we lost uh, Pete this week. Dave, thanks for being with us. Uh, I know it's been a hard sure. week. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, you know, it has, it's, it's, it's only been about 24 hours, and it's, you know, it's starting to hit everybody, I think, of, of what, we've, what we've all lost. You know, Pete has been a part of this city and this region's fabric for the better part of seven years, and you know, not by any choosing of his own. Um, you know, his accomplishments as an athlete before he got sick were, were 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 good. They were admirable, and but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Big Poppy. He wasn't Tom Brady, but now he is. He he made himself into that through the circumstances that he was faced with. And um, you know, the the story I like to tell most about Pete is that, um, you know, we, we write about it in the book that. Um, when he got the diagnosis, he, he kind of knew ahead of time. He was Googling it, and he had a good feeling that he had ALS. And when he finally got the confirmation, the family sat down and had a conversation at the, at the table. They're a very tight-knit family up in Beverly, and um, everyone was obviously sad. You know, some of them were crying, and uh, the, the, one of them said, you know, this is tragic, this is unacceptable. And Pete pounded his fist on the table. He said, guys, this is an opportunity. And that's the way he approached the whole thing. He said, this is my calling. I was put here to do this, to find a way to cure this disease. He said, there's no cure, there's no treatment. That's unacceptable. We're going to change that. And he literally said that from the moment he was diagnosed. And that's how he lived the rest of his life. Hmm. 
and talk about you know, make, making the <laughs> making the most of an of an opportunity, <laughs> negative as it as it might be. I mean, the the ice bucket challenge and the awareness that you know I think most folks, I'll speak for myself, you know, we're certainly familiar with ALS, um, but you know the the his ability, you know, using using his marketing skills to 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 initiate that challenge uh, and, and really use it for a real positive ends was was uh, was unbelievably impressive. Well, I think, you know, given the kind of person Pete was, um, whatever he would have chosen to do in life, he would have excelled at. And this was unfortunately his cause. And this is what happened to him. And, um, you know, when when he started out, when he was diagnosed, ALS wasn't even in the top 30 uh, most funded diseases in the world. And now it's in the top five, mm. and that's that's incredible. That's directly because of the ice bucket challenge, which he had the wherewithal. You know, people were doing it here and there, spotty, but he's the one that pulled it all together, co-opted it for ALS, created the hashtag ice bucket challenge, he got it to you know people on the Red Sox, people at Boston College, Matt Ryan at uh, the Atlanta Falcons, who was Pete's classmate at Boston College. That's kind of how the whole thing started, and and it just took off from there. Um, and it was a you know a viral sensation that we've never seen bef- that we had never seen before, and, and I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. No, I mean in this business, like you just pray for something like that. It like it, yeah. that goes that popular and um, spreads kind of like wildfire. I mean we had everywhere from sports teams <coughs> to the governor, the mayor challenging each other, and um, I remember my mother-in-law did it at a bar one night we were out yeah. to dinner for her birthday and she was like i'm gonna do the ice bucket <laughs> challenge and um everyone at the bar like chipped in and then gave her clothes and yeah. stuff to wear for the rest of the night and it was just this amazing thing to see people not only come together to support it but you, everyone was talking about it and it was it was raising money but it was also just raising awareness right of and, people and, that, and that's the beauty of the story and and, and what he did was he you know, everyone has a story, like you just said, that, that they have some connection to it. Everyone knows someone that did it. Um, you know, and, and, you know, forget the mayor and the governor. This went to Oprah Winfrey, Bill yeah. Gates, Justin Timberlake, Sidney Crosby, like nuns on the tops of mountains. Like this became, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was just like a goofy um, viral thing that happened. And all, but then what it did simultaneously, it did two things. It, it raised awareness for ALS and raised all the money. But what it did more than anything, in my opinion, was, and this is Pete's real legacy, was it, it showed the true power of social media, which we didn't know before this happened. Because if you remember in 2014, Facebook and Twitter, there weren't a lot of videos on there at that time. It was just kind of starting. The technology wasn't quite there. Like the phones weren't like they are now where everything's video. Um, and, a lo- and, and all of a sudden, videos were popping up on people's phones, the Ice Bucket Challenge videos. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of, um, you know, made the thing go and and you know another great moment in the book we have is you know the, the folks from facebook obviously took notice of this they were like what's going on and they brought that we have a great moment in the book where they they actually brought the family out to silicon valley and they sat down with them and they showed them a map of where it started and then it grew and it grew and it grew and then it was on every continent and they showed them the metrics which were uh, over a billion videos in like 30 days and they had never seen anything like it. And I think, honestly, Facebook learned a lot about their platform from the Ice Bucket Challenge. Well, that's, a, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, Dave, I know it's, it's, a, it's a hard week for you. It's a busy week. Just, you know, the nature of the disease, you, you knew this day was coming. Uh, you know, I don't know that that makes it any easier. Just any sort of final thoughts that, 
that you want to share you know this week any new sort of impressions that you have of, of Pete and the family well I think you know Friday is going to be a tough day you know we're going to be saying goodbye to him formally over at you know St. Ignatius at Boston College my alma mater which you know so I had a, I did have a, a real connection with the family through the BC thing and um so I, I'm, I, you know, myself personally and Casey, you know, we're very sad. Um, we're, you know, overwhelmed for the family. You know, I can't imagine what they're going through. They, they have, in a lot of ways, been preparing for this day for the last seven years. They knew it was going to come. They thought it was going to come a lot sooner than it did. I think every day they had with Pete was a was a bonus to them. And you know, he got to spend some time with that beautiful little girl that that him and Julie had, little Lucy, who's. Um, you know, she'll have some memories of her father, which is a beautiful thing. And um, but I think it's you know it's only just starting to hit them, and and they're in a circle of, of you know the magnitude of what Pete has accomplished. And like I said, you know when 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 the book came out, we had our event at Fenway Park. The mayor was there. You know, Big Poppy was there. And when people like that walk into a room like that, five hundred people with TV cameras, everyone swarms them. Like, and you see, you're like, oh, who's that? Same thing happened when Pete came in. You know, people swarmed him. People just loved to be around him. They wanted to touch him. They want to talk to him, uh, even though he couldn't talk back. You know, he's just a bigger than life figure in this city. And and you know, I, I thought it was great that the mayor lit up City Hall in red per ALS last night in Pete's honor. And I hope the city will find something long term to do to honor him, like a statue or something along those lines. Thank, thanks for coming in, Dave. Sure. Finally, also announced today, uh, Sports Illustrated's uh, 2019 Sports Person of the Year is Megan Rapinoe. Yay, uh, ladies. Captain of the United States Women's uh, World Cup winning team. Mm -hmm. uh, a fantastic award. Um, a very interesting person both on and off the field. Yes. Uh, obviously contributed tremendously to the success of the team. Um, but also very heavily involved, uh, not just behind the scenes, but with the U.S. women's soccer fight uh, team fight for equal pay. Mm -hmm. um, and also very outspoken on a number of other important cultural and political issues of the day. So a, to say she is a well-rounded uh, human being is, a, is an understatement. <laughs> um, and I think it's you know, fantastic that uh, she's being recognized this way. I agree. I think it's a great choice. Um, and... To your point, she was obviously an incredible athlete, and what the women's team did was, you know, it was an amazing win for them top to bottom. But they have thrust the idea and the conversation of equal pay into the spotlight in a way that it just had never been before. Um, as an individual, she took on the president and was unabashedly herself uh, and getting attacked by him um, on Twitter, which is, uh, you know, its own unique moniker these days. But she has she has truly been herself every step of the way. I think that's a great role model. Um, you know, I don't have girls. I have a son. I'm happy to have him grow up seeing people like that. Um, and being being praised for who they are, you have two young, young daughters. I do. Um, and it's good to see people be themselves, be unapologetic, and then be honored for it in a way that, you know, maybe a few years ago she couldn't have been. Yeah, I wonder if that, if that would be the case. And, and uh, you're right, you know, my, my daughter certainly, uh, they both play sports, they both look up to her. Um, they were both, uh, you know, captured by the, the run that the women made. And, uh, you know, certainly 
you saw what, what I thought was great during during the entire World Cup run was not just uh, young girls, but you saw young boys with pink in their hair. Yes, uh, you know, celebrating celebrating those athletes as well. And so I I think despite the fact that she may sort of appear on its face to be somewhat you know sort of polarizing culturally, I think she was actually quite unifying mm-hmm. figure uh, across the country, and it was great to see that she's being honored by Sports Illustrated in this way. Yeah, and she is, this is not going to be the end of, of her, and I think her activism, and you used the word uh, earlier in another conversation, the idea of being an influencer, I think that's exactly what she is, not in the uh, just Instagram manner, although she certainly was, um, but she's she truly did influence conversations, and uh, we need, you know, it's, it's just good to see voices like that out there. Absolutely. And always happy when it's coming from a lady. Athletes understand that they have a platform now, um, unlike what they've ever had in the past with, without, you know, even though this is a very, Sports Illustrated is very traditional old media, um, but, the, you know, these athletes have their own platform, whether it's through social media or other means, could be a podcast. Could uh, be. And, uh, and she is certainly not afraid to um, use her voice for the things that she cares about. So congratulations to her. Absolutely. Congrats, Megan. That is going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Cayenne, thanks for having me here this week. Thanks for coming in, Ben. This is fun. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room in our building at the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. Filling in for Cosmo Macero, I am Ben Josephson. And up next, an interview with Eugene Volokh, professor at UCLA's School of Law about the rules of free speech. This is Suzanne Morse, vice president at O'Neill & Associates, and I am the lo- on the line with Eugene Volokh, and we are talking today about his new initiative, the Free Speech Rules Project. The Free Speech Rules Project is a series of short videos funded by the Stanton Foundation that summarize different issues that have arisen around the First Amendment and can be found at the website www.freespeechrules.org. Professor Eugene Volokh is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at the UCLA School of Law and the founder of the popular legal affairs blog, The Volokh Conspiracy. Welcome, Eugene. Uh, great to be on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, so tell us a little bit about how this project came about and what you're hoping to achieve with it. Sure. So um, uh, the First Amendment uh, is very simple. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Uh, short, simple, but First Amendment law is not at all simple. Um, the cases uh, dealing with it are not at all short. I teach a whole class, which is about the First Amendment. Two-thirds of it is about free speech and uh, free press. Uh, so I thought it was important that uh, uh, there'd be some uh, online resources, preferably visual resources, that uh, uh, people could use to uh, uh, to learn more about it. And those are a wide range of people. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that uh, uh, high school students and junior high school students can learn more about it. College students can learn more about it. Um, uh, others, uh, adults, uh, can learn more about it. Um, and uh, so I thought that it would be useful to have those kinds of uh, uh, short, graphical, clear, uh, impartial videos uh, on the subject. And the Stanton, uh, excuse me, and the Stanton Foundation came in and said, 
we'd be happy to fund it. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I thought this was an excellent opportunity to actually get uh, uh, get uh, the things uh, uh, produced. So, um, so why don't we give uh, our listeners out there a uh, a sample of what they will uh, hear when they go to the the web page and uh, click on the videos? What should people know about um, the rules around fake news in the First Amendment? Well, so fake news is a relatively new term, uh, at least in my experience. It's only been talked about for the last couple of years. But the issue has been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It goes back to, uh, uh, in American uh, legal history, it goes back to the Sedition Act of 1798, uh, which was an attempt to stamp out what was seen as a as a tide of fake news about the government and about government officials that was damaging America's fledgling republic. Right. Uh, and uh, 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 that was has been both at the time was highly controversial. Uh, uh, was uh, uh, was eventually renounced by the by the U.S. government and the Supreme Court later said, you know, the verdict of history, as it were, is in that that, that law, even though it was never struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, uh, it, it uh, is an example of something that the American government shouldn't be doing. Right. Um, uh, uh, so so this issue has been around for a long time, uh, uh, but it's important to break it down into a couple of different categories. Behind every one of these labels, like fake news, there often are a whole bunch of different kinds of things happening. Uh, so, for example, uh, falsehoods about particular people or companies that tend to damage reputations can indeed sometimes be punished. Mm-hmm. Now, the law doesn't call this fake news. It calls it defamation or right. libel or slander. Um, uh, but, uh, but there the concern is that there is information out there that's fake and that damages a particular person or, uh, or a company's reputation. Uh, so that's something that uh, um, uh, that uh, the law recognizes needs to be punished. Now there are substantial First Amendment constraints on that. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, somebody suing over it has to show that uh, uh, the defendant uh, not only made a mistake but actually deliberately lied. Mm. Sometimes that's not the standard. It's itself a complicated rule. Uh, but uh, that's one kind of fake news that is punishable. Another kind of fake news that's punishable is uh, fraud, mm. uh, knowing lies aimed at getting money. Uh, so if somebody uh, uh, calls you up and says, we're doing charitable fundraising for, uh, uh, for some, uh, some cause, and then, and then lies about the nature of the cause, lies about the amount of money that actually ends up in the group's uh, hands, uh, um, and that is, uh, that's punishable as fraud. Uh, likewise, uh, 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 lies, but even honest mistakes in commercial advertising can be punished, too. Hmm. On the other hand, lies about the government can't be punished. So if somebody says something even deliberately false about what the U.S. government is doing, what a state government or a local government is doing, um, uh, that's something that uh, uh, that is categorically protected. And the theory being hmm. that the risk of government entities such as courts, deciding uh, whether something is uh, a lie about the government, the risk that they're going to do that the wrong way, they're, they're going to make an error or going to be themselves biased by their political predilections is so high uh, that uh, 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 dealing with those lies has to be something for public debate and for people to respond to the, the lies with, uh, with the, the truth uh, uh, rather, than, rather than for courts. 
uh, also lies about big picture topics, things like philosophy, religion, history, social sciences, arts, probably physical sciences as well, also generally can't be punished. Mm. And again, um, uh, that's something that's generally left for public debate to correct. So, for example, a law-banning Holocaust denial uh, would be unconstitutional right. under the First Amendment. Mm. So what about hate speech? What are the rules around hate speech that our listeners should be aware of when it comes to the First Amendment? Well, here things are a little bit simpler, but again, um, one thing that lawyers do is they, they think not just about the first thing that people think of with regard to hate speech, somebody, uh, somebody, for example, condemning some racial group or whatever, but other kinds of things that may express hatred. And uh, um, uh, the answer is that... Uh, 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 Sometimes such speech is punishable, but not because it's hateful. So the first rule is that the First Amendment protects all ideas, whether loving, hateful, or anything else in between. Mm -hmm. It protects racist ideas. It protects ideas that sharply criticize various religious groups, whether it be uh, that sharply criticize Islam and Muslims or Catholicism uh, or uh, evangelical Christians. And we've all heard examples of of people uh, uh, criticizing, sometimes excessively, sometimes quite plausibly, criticizing various uh, religious beliefs. Um, So the First Amendment protects all ideas. At the same time, some speech is not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, for example, threats. If I threaten to kill someone, that's unprotected under the so-called true threats exception to the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. That's true regardless of whether the speech is supposedly bigoted or hateful, but in practice, at least certain kinds of speech that somebody might label hate speech, such as, I'm going to go and uh, bomb that synagogue, let's say. Uh, that uh, 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 some people might label that as hate speech, but the law labels it as a threat and punishes it. And that's true whether it's a bomb, trying to bomb a synagogue or an abortion clinic or a draft office or uh, uh, some uh, uh, a wealthy person's house or whatever else. So the idea um, there is that the hate speech itself is not the punishable a- action. It's the threat part of it. Right. So true threats, which are often hateful, but sometimes uh, sometimes uh, uh, are based on something other than hatred and certainly something other than bigoted hatred, mm-hmm. uh, those are punishable, not because of uh, they're, they're hateful, but because they're threatening. Likewise, so-called fighting words, which are basically face-to-face insults um, that are uh, likely to start a fight. Um, uh, personal insults. Right. Uh, those uh, uh, those are punishable, but again, whether they're bigoted or not, uh, somebody can use racial epithets and be punished under that theory, uh, but somebody could use non-racial epithets and be punished under that theory, too. Um, uh, it's a narrow exception. It doesn't apply to just general ideas that people find offensive. Uh, it applies only to, again, targeted, face-to-face, personal insults. Uh, but they can sometimes be punished, again, though, not because they're hate speech, but because they fit within this fighting words exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, one thing to keep in mind is the law draws a sharp distinction between attempts to ban hate crimes and attempts to ban hate speech. Right, of course. Um, hate crimes for, uh, generally are defined as uh, uh, violence or vandalism. Uh, that uh, in which the target is selected based on race or religion or sexual orientation or whatever else. Uh, so uh, if somebody uh, bombs a synagogue or a mosque, uh, that's punishable, uh, both as a bombing, and also there can be a, a extra punishment because of this discriminatory targeting. Mm-hmm. 
Likewise, if somebody vandalizes, let's say, paint swastikas on it or something like that. But it's because of the vandalism. Right. The vandalism is, is punishable. On the other hand, if somebody sharply criticizes it, whether in a hateful way or even in a, again, a possibly plausible way, there may be reasonable things that people can say to sharply condemn certain uh, uh, religious belief systems, uh, that is speech and that is protected by the First Amendment. If our listeners are are interested, they should absolutely go to uh, www.freespeechrules.org. Professor Eugene Volokh, thank you for joining us on OA On Air today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. To hear more from Professor Eugene Volokh about free speech in schools and on campus, please head on over to our OA On Air SoundCloud to listen to the full interview. Thanks to Eugene for joining us this week. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Two Minutes with Cayenne. Two Minutes with Tom. (laughs) This is episode number 75 or 74 or 73. 73. 73. If it was going to be Two Minutes with Cayenne, it would be a couple of minutes with Cayenne, right? A couple of minutes with Cayenne, Two Minutes with Tom. (laughs) You're not finding me funny anymore. (laughs) So this week... Um, you spoke at the annual ACOM dinner, which is the, for anyone who doesn't know, the Association of Inde- Independent Colleges and Universities in right. Massachusetts. Right. Great organization <clears throat> uh, representing exactly what it sounds like, private colleges It's representing all private colleges and universities in the state of Massachusetts, of which there are 57. And, um, it's a lot. It's a lot. And they're really the trade group for private higher education. Rich Doherty is its leader. He's been there, oh my gosh, maybe a dozen years now. Um, And every significant issue that comes up on higher ed, for example, financial disclosure was a major issue this year. Yes. They're the ones that work with state government agencies like the Board of Higher Education and the legislative leadership on education to make sure that there isn't an overreaction in new regulations for schools, but that there's a common sense approach to get this thing done. What... Uh, what people don't know or tend to forget is that these 57 schools generate $19 billion in institutional expenditure. Yes, and that's billion with a B. It's billion with a B a lot before of the ripple effect takes mm-hmm. place. And it's also an organization and a, and a group of, of, um, of, of schools that become an economic driver in the state. They employ 100,000 men and women. 100,000 men and women in the state. Um, so it's a real economic driver. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, they're the generator of people, students they teach, go to the, you know, you know career-turning uh, jobs that, you know, help with, with oh my gosh, everything you can imagine. Um, you know, the STEM industry, mm-hmm. the financial service industry, life sciences, and every other measure that goes into a, a thriving miracle economy in Massachusetts. It's, it's really something to be... And those jobs wouldn't be here if those schools weren't here. Yeah, and, and as you said, there's no shortage of them. There's um, no shortage. Whether it's here in Boston or yeah. throughout the state. And that's everywhere from, you know, uh, the smaller schools that are able to give a different kind of attention to students in a lot of, in right. a lot of cases, um, all the way up through, you know, the big, big name schools that come to mind when people think of that. And we're really fortunate. I mean, Massachusetts is a hub of education for... Um, those schools have a lot to do with that. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. The characteristics of the school might change, but 
the fact of the matter is, you know, the, the, the principles and the purpose of existence are the same. And it, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, the reminder, one of the reminders I, I had the other, the other night while speaking was, look, the 2020 election year is coming up, the 2020 census is coming up, and every one of these students, of which there are thousands, uh, who come to the state of Massachusetts to attend school, if they're here for six months and a day, the federal law says they're citizens of Massachusetts and we want them counted. We don't want them undercounted. We want them counted because it means a lot for federal financing, federal money's flowing into education and other things in the state of Massachusetts, as well as federal representation. So, you know, it, it's an important thing. We also, we can count on schools, faculty, students, and administrations to be engaged in an electoral process in the election year coming up. So yeah. it's an important Part of democracy. Important messages. That's right. It's and part that, uh, of, part civil of discourse, really, that, that yeah. these schools well, and the students that's there. That's right. I mean, they're the, you know, they're the showpieces of discourse and debate, and so they can play a very important role mm -hmm. in, in what goes on during the course of an, uh, an election year. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can we talk about Brexit next week? We can. Because we have an election coming up this week. We do. Okay. And, and um, maybe, maybe some answers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week. <laughs>